Welcome to the Impact Masters Commission Bible Study Podcast. Join us as we study the Bible verse by verse. I'm your host, Pastor Josh Hawkins. We're going to have some deep, thoughtful, and hopefully helpful discussions to try and discover together what it means to be the followers of Jesus. don't want it to. Just kidding. You know, it's not like we have all the time in the world. How is everyone? How are your Thanksgiving holidays? Pretty good. How's yours? Very nice. My sister, who lives in Boulder, Colorado, was here with her children and... um, a song about my sister who lives in Boulder. No, it's about Boulder. It's a beautiful place. It's right up against the North Range uh, or the Front Range. I think they call it the Front Range of the Rockies. So, and it's very beautiful. And there's a lot of marijuana dispensaries everywhere. So, yeah. right. 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 Hmm. Well, I mean, you know, you could just go to Michigan. Yeah. Which is right across the because pot is totally illegal in Michigan for for recreational use and whatever. Yeah. So, if you were to go. You're not allowed to bring it back across the state. But if you got high, and then you came back to the state and you're high, would you get in trouble? How could you prove that you had used it in Michigan? So you'd better stay in Michigan until you have come down. Well, it's illegal federally. You could technically get in trouble they're not going to do anything. I mean, they're not. But if you cross state lines, then you have that's become a federal issue, especially if you're carrying any kind of pot or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's fascinating. It really is. Not interest, you know. I mean, it's not something that... My dad used to get moonshine when he was specifically... (laughs) What's that? (laughs) Well, because moonshine, like certain kinds of moonshine are illegal in certain... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can get it in Tennessee or Mississippi. Depending on the state, you can make, but you can only make a certain amount. Like you can make like a, yeah. a very small amount and then. Wait a minute. I'm getting it. That's, that's, that's going one, one too far, I think. It's only wrong if you get caught. It's <laughs> Should Christians use mind-altering substances? No. Yeah. Do you drink coffee? Yes. 
Yes. Now, watch out. Alter my ability to think. Yes, it does. Caffeine is a mind-altering oh, substance. Yes. Absolutely. Isn't it? It absolutely is. I do never heard that. It doesn't affect my ability to be of sound mind. I I would I would disagree with that statement. Really? And it makes you I can't think. It literally changes. It literally changes the chemistry of your brain. It is just as much a, a mind altering substance as THC or well, nicotine. Just because it doesn't do that for you, like it gives me bad anxiety. Yeah. Right. But I'm saying if I have a cup of coffee in the morning, it's not the same as taking a couple shots before I go to school. <laughs> Depends, because for some people, a couple shots would not affect them at all. Yeah, that's true. Well, well, I think that drinking, drinking in moderation, I'm not against that in general. Like I okay. myself never will, because I'm so, going to be credential. Why can we not but extend that to, anyway, you know, a couple yeah. of marijuana gummies before you go to school in the morning? Hey, okay. Again, I don't. Here is the here is the thing. We all we always need to be careful about anything like that. Or whenever we say, just categorically no to something the Bible doesn't have really anything to say about, we need to be careful. We need to be really careful. Really, where? It it talks about being a sound mind. Sure, it does. Yeah. I think that that applies to And it says not to be a drunkard, etc. Yeah. But that's that is again that is not a a blanket. No, no, it's not black and white, but I do think the Bible addresses it. That's why I'm saying being careful. Yeah. Because the question I asked was, should Christians use it? Yes or no? The question is how. Yeah. Fair and I would say that's true for really almost anything. That's true for the internet. That's true for medicines of all kinds and descriptions that's true for there isn't really much of anything that is absolutely evil 100 percent yeah you know we have to be thinking about how which is why it is so important that we understand that what jesus has called us to do is love god and love people absolutely first of first importance that we understand that because through that lens we can interpret a whole lot of things and also through that lens we can learn that we don't get to interpret anything by ourselves we have to interpret things as a community because me Drinking a little or whatever where I'm not going to completely lose my, you know, may not affect me personally. But if my alcoholic friend smells it on my breath or sees me doing that, what's it going to do for them? Maybe just the thing that bumps them back into using again. Right? Or maybe not. Maybe drinking coffee doesn't really affect me very much, but maybe it makes someone else uh, not quite themselves. Coffee makes you sleepy? Yeah, it does. That oh, doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, so if you drink coffee, coffee makes me want to take a nap. Is that true of all warm drinks or just coffee? For a certain amount of time. So if you take a nap, you wake up and you're buzzing. You've got to sleep right away. Really? Well, that's interesting. 
I've never heard that. Say that one more time. Oh. Coffee tends to make me quite jittery. You okay? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because Ross says that about Mountain Dew. Like, Mountain Dew, like, literally, he's actually being serious. If he drinks Mountain Dew, it, like, calms his nervous system down. Right. Because his nervous system, like, his hyperactivity with caffeine. So, see, we need, we need to learn. It's about how am I affected and how is it affecting others? What is it doing to me, for me, etc.? None of these things are, you know, outright verboten. Now, we live in a land where many substances are illegal and the uses of those substances, within, and the Bible encourages us to follow the laws of the land, which is why, even though I don't think that moderate alcohol use is really an issue for people that love Jesus, my son, who is 20 years old, I will tell him until he's 21, you should not be drinking at all, not even a little. And, <clears throat> you know, he can think when he wants to think about that. But that's the law. We are to adhere to the law of the land, which is why we shouldn't be bringing pot back from Michigan. Amen. But I do live in Michigan. Well, there you go. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll dive further into First Timothy. Father, thank you. Lord, we love you. And Lord, my prayer this morning is, again, Holy Spirit, guide us, lead us. The royal law is love our neighbor as ourselves. This is what the Apostle Paul taught us. Lord, that is, that is not... A, it may be a simple answer, but it is not an easy one. My prayer this morning, Lord, as we study your word, as we continue to study qualifications for leadership and the reasons for those qualifications, Lord, I pray that we would see clearly what it is you are trying to say to us, that we would not allow our flesh or the enemy to turn things into um, pharisaical Religio uh, religiosity. <laughs> but Lord, that you would help us to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, beckoning us to what we were created to be. In Jesus' name, amen. You were created by love for love and it is your highest calling and you are only truly human when who you are, what you say, what you think and what you feel are all flowing from the fountain of love that's what humanity is and that's how we reflect God's nature into the world through love it's also how we rule with Christ. So when we're talking about authority figures in the church, <clears throat> we are looking for people who are marked by this thing, by love. By love, as Jesus exampled it for us, by love, as described by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, patient, kind, does not envy, does not boast. 
That's what we're looking for. We ended our last, or by, or, you know, the other one that helps us is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus draws out the dimensions of love in beautiful, beautiful ways. I was, I'm reading a book. I feel like the books that affect me the most are the books that it take me that takes me the longest to read. Maybe I should read all of them more slowly. But I'm reading a book extremely slowly called The Ninefold Path of Jesus, where it takes the nine beatitudes and begins to view them as a way, Jesus' way, Jesus' path. And the way in which the beatitudes stand in opposition to our flesh, the way that we're wired, the way that we would naturally respond to the world. And yet, God, Jesus, invites us through the Beatitudes into a different posture. I think maybe we should go through that together sometime, but we'll wait till I'm done with it. It's really beautiful, honestly. And it ends with a prayer that prays through the Beatitudes, naming the beatitude, naming my natural inclination, and then asking for Jesus' help to move forward in, in his way. And uh, yeah, it's really good. Okay, so we ended, the reason I say that is because we ended um, in, we're in verse three of chapter three where it says that he should be the person, man or woman, that is a leader in the church, should be gentle and not violent. Not violent, but gentle. Our culture disdains gentleness, at least when it comes to leaders. I read a tweet yesterday, or it was either yesterday or today, I don't remember, I was talking about and this person was just bemoaning what leadership in the evangelical church looks like, or at least in their experience. And they said, why is it that, that the people that are training leaders in the evangelical world don't train them to be safe people? Yeah. <clears throat> that hurt my heart. Because I think back to my training in leadership, I wasn't trained to be a safe person either. I wasn't. The Holy Spirit is forming me into a safe person, but I am not always... I'm, I'm, I wasn't trained in that. I was trained to build a, an organization a specific way, and I was trained to know whether I was doing a good job based on how many people showed up in the room how many people came crying up to the altar at the end of my talk, etc. That was the end. That was the end of how I would figure out whether I was doing a good job. I never was taught to base an understanding of how I'm doing in my ministry on the character of the people that were a part of my ministry or the way that I shared a message. 
It was about the way the nickels and noses. How much money comes in in the offering and how many people show up to your gatherings. Those were our... And they said things like, we count people because people count. Which is fine. Okay. I'm not saying you completely ignore how many people show up to something that you're doing. If you are indeed noticing the people that are there because you care about the people that are there, but I think that's different than a number uh, that you turn into the district of how many attendees have shown up. I would love to see I would love to see how many attendees were in the room and then a second number how many people were paying attention. That would be a really good one. <laughs> how many people were in the room and how many people actually were different tomorrow than they were today because they were here. How do you measure that? I don't know. But you don't do it by turning people into numbers. I'll tell you that right now. <clears throat> but what does it look like? And I'll tell you this right now. Gentleness does not often gather a crowd. Um, Facebook has shown us this in powerful ways because the people who have large followings uh, and who are driving the conversation in social media are people that are, well, gentle is not a word we'd use to describe them. They're incendiary. They are the ones who can yell the loudest, say the most shocking things, say things in ways that make people angry. Bible tells us that the anger of man does not accomplish the will of God. What do you think, y'all? What does it look like for a leader to be gentle? I love that. Like, it's just natural. When you want to be heard, you raise your voice. But I think the Holy Spirit has shown me a lot lately that oftentimes the louder you start speaking, the less people start listening to That's you. That's true. And so learning to not raise my voice when I'm upset has mm -hmm. helped me so much yeah. in, in discussing conflict, not fighting through conflict. Do you know what you're doing when you do that, though? When, when you don't raise your voice, you're not triggering your fight or flight response. Yeah. That's literally what happens. And that's most of the time why we do it. We are jury-rigging our adrenal glands yeah. to give us a little more emotional 
punch. Yeah. And not just ours, but yours. If I'm yelling at you. Right. What's going to happen? I just really learned people yell because in our brains, we think if we're louder, people will hear me. But really, nobody wants to listen to the person that is yelling. Right. Rarely. Well, and I would go even further. I would say they can't. Because when your fight or flight response is activated, your higher levels of thought are not possible. Your cerebral cortex shuts down for the most part. And it engages only your instinctual, the instinctual levels of your brain. Higher thoughts are not possible when you are triggered. <clears throat> I know that word is maybe... Not the right word, but that's, there's a switch in your brain, a fight or flight switch. When your brain has, feels threatened, your more instinctual centers of your brain cannot tell the difference between an existential threat and a philosophical threat. <laughs> okay. Okay. What's the difference between those two things? An existential threat and a philosophical threat. I don't even know if the word goes. Sure, that's why I asked. I figured you didn't. So, an existential threat means actual physical threat, like something so bad is about to happen to you. You're going to get mauled by a tiger. <laughs> exactly. No. Like you're physically going to be hurt. Exactly. You're going to. That means that your physical <laughs> being is threatened directly, and that's. We have a a chemicals process in our brains as we, that people refer to as fight or flight, which is triggered, which enables our bodies. It causes chemical changes in our bodies that enable us to run farther, fight harder, etc. Okay? Um, and we don't feel the pain of that until later. It just, it does a lot of, but it also shuts down our higher thinking. Because okay? you don't have time. When someone's run, running at you with a knife, you don't have time to go, let me think about this. <laughs> you don't have time. And so the brain's like, we don't have time to waste energy on higher levels of thought. It pumps blood into the other areas of our brain, which say, get out of here. Either, either fight hard or flee, one of the two. Or sometimes some people... It doesn't work very well, so they just freeze. Fight, flight, or freeze. Especially if you have a history of trauma, you may tend to freeze, to disassociate from your body and no longer existent there. None of those responses are good ones. None of those responses are Christ-like ones. Our higher levels of our brain are not capable of functioning when you are triggered. Which is the problem with, that's what happens with PTSD. And, and because your body remembers, even if your brain doesn't, even if your brain is able to dissociate uh, the sound of a car backfiring from an actual gunshot wound, gunshot, you know, your, your body is not able to do that. And your body... 
kicks into fight or flight and you begin to experience massive panic attack where that's what PTSD is. Where non-threatening things are seen as threatening because they echo with your trauma in some way. Post-traumatic stress disorder. I read a book called The Body Keeps the Score, which is all about this. It's all about the way that trauma lives in our physical being, even when, even when it's not really affecting the higher levels of our thought processes anymore, it can cause your body to react. In fact, almost everyone who battles an autoimmune disorder has had trauma at some point in their past. And it's because their body is responding to trauma in a physical way and fighting against itself. And there are ways to deal to deal with that. <clears throat> but they have to go beyond just talking out your experience. You have to actually physically enact it. Although this the guy who wrote this is a is a uh, he is a an atheist. But he still says that religious experience can fix trauma in the body. He doesn't know how, doesn't understand how it works, but it can. People that have had these encounters with something supernatural, all of a sudden, they don't respond the same way to trauma that they used to. I think that's fascinating. Thanks, Doc. I believe that too. So raising your voice is putting, is shutting down the higher levels of your brain. And it's also shutting down the higher levels of the brains of the people that are listening. Which is probably good, because if you need to raise your voice, you probably don't have anything very intelligent to say. That's true. Or you do, but you just are not intelligent enough to communicate it well. Thoughts? Have I, have I triggered your fight and flight? <laughs> I've always thought, like, you have to raise your voice. Like, that was honestly just what I thought. Like, that's how you get your point across. Because when you're mad, you can't control your response, but you can. I mean, it's hard. Yeah. Maybe not your immediate response, <clears throat> but you can stop and think about it as you continue on in that conversation. Like, I might be upset, but there's a better way to communicate this than right. the other way. Absolutely. So. We have the ability to flip the switch back if we'll stop a second mm-hmm. and actually do it, which is why they say things like, okay, so just count backwards from 10, or, you know, that's why they teach police officers to de-escalate not a lot of police officers are great at that. But at coming into a situation that where everyone's triggered, bad guy and good guy, and coming into the situation and saying, we're all going to calm down, and, and there are ways to get everybody to just chill for a second and step back and realize nobody wants to shoot anybody really in this moment. 
and it's not necessary. Let's relax. Good friend of mine, Kirsch Cochran, uh, is the uh, captain of the police at Huntington University, and uh, and he was amazing at this when he was police officer here in Fort Wayne. He would step into situations that were headed for violence, and he would just shut it down. I felt like the Holy Spirit gave him the ability to say the things that needed to be said in those moments and to to end violent situations before they before they popped up which is why he is trustworthy to be a leader because he's gentle and nonviolent blessed are the meek they shall inherit the earth same word by the way gentle meek both translations of the same greek word what does it mean to be gentle? Come on, give me a definition of gentle. <coughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's huge. Um, and like like you say, you know, when, when you raise your voice, etc., when you fail to recognize a power dynamic that's at work in a group and instinctively lean on that power dynamic to make someone else back off, make them feel small, that's the opposite of gentleness. I think that's the primary way we need to understand gentleness in our day is to be watching for power dynamics that are at work in a group and instead of leveraging them to lift yourself over people and exalt yourself over them, leveraging them to make space for people who have no power in a group to have a voice. I think that's great. I think that's just Philippians 2. have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus who though he had the Godhead that's who he was he was God did not seek that position that place that uh, of lording it over but took on the form of a servant humbled himself <clears throat> that's what we're called to do What else? Gentle. Is gentleness weakness? No. I was told by somebody somewhere, they get, like he's a little, we're, I think we were doing a Fruits of the Spirit series at my church, and literally the title of like the, or no, it was Beatitudes, so it's not Fruits of the Spirit, we're talking about Beatitudes. But the title of the sermon was Meekness is Not Weakness. Amen. Like the quiet person in the room might be the strongest, most vocal, most confident person in the room sometimes. Yeah. Not always, like obviously it goes hand in hand, but meekness doesn't mean you're not confident and not able to lead effectively, but in fact opposite. Mm -hmm. 
And isn't it usually the person who has a lot to prove that needs to be big and loud? And yeah. Most often, the people that are the loudest, the most flashy, the most, like, look at me, look at me, are the most insecure people. So meekness, gentleness, is actually strength. The strength held in reserve. Think of Jesus, creator of the universe, phenomenal cosmic powers, right? Okay, that was from Aladdin. Anybody recognize it? Anyway. And then we're about to celebrate it in just a few weeks. He becomes an infant. Omnipotence becomes impotence. Infant that can't feed himself, can't, can't wipe his own backside. The God for whom all things are possible becomes the God for whom very little is, almost nothing is possible. This is love. That he would do that, that he would do, that he would step to that place, that he would take on our flesh. That is what we're talking about. This is the glory of Christmas. Yeah. I know the Bible, like it talks about Jesus' birth and then yeah. it talks a lot about his ministry. It doesn't talk about like a lot of his Yes, like, there's the silent years. Yeah, but like when Jesus was like, I don't know, one year old, do you think he knew that he was like Jesus? Like he's a baby. Babies don't know stuff like that, but he's also Jesus. Like that, it's easy, not easy. But I think it's easier to understand how a 30-year-old man can be fully God and fully man. But a baby, like how is a baby, how does a baby know everything but at the same time can't even talk? That doesn't not make any sense to me. I I believe in it. It's just really like as a baby, he was still Jesus. He was still 100% God. But he also couldn't feed himself or talk or do anything. So it's like how does he know everything but also like that's just confusing that is what Christmas is for is to sit in the warmth and the glory of that mystery and say wow and that that's it we don't need more than that we don't need to go further than that yeah just sit in these in 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 these polar opposite things that exist <laughs> in the same place at the same time and say, this is God, you know? And, yeah. the, and, and just let your nose bleed freely and just be like, wow! I know. If so God cool. was understandable, then he wouldn't be God. I can't understand my own wife, let alone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I think, we, I think that we often, we, we don't, we shy away from mystery because we like yeah. certainty. But I think that's, I think we're robbing ourselves of awe, which is something that you crave. I crave it. Why do we go see these movies with these people with these great superpowers? Because we want to be awed. We want to be like, whoa, you know, that's what we want, you know? That's why we watch fireworks displays. That's why we go to the mountains and stand in front of mountains like, 
Wow, like I can't even comprehend. This is what, because we were built for awe. We were built for wonder. We were built for, oh my gosh, that's what, that's the one who deserves the most awe. You know that awe was built into the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, holy, hallowed. Whoa! That's the response. We start with daddy, and then we get to... And then we get to, yes, we do. Abba. Yeah. Like, that was weird. Culture that word. I, yeah, I understand that. <laughs> That's why I use the word Abba. Father. I don't use father because, of, you know, I, I have a father, but I don't have another Abba. Yeah. And Abba is even more infantile than daddy. It's dada. It's, <laughs> it's an infant's cry to his father, and it's yeah. that level of, and that's the word Jesus uses, Abba, which is why I use it. I stand in, before him and before the one that is so mysterious that I have no idea what to do with him. He blows away all my categories. And that one, I get to call Abba. That's huge. It is good for your soul, folks, to sit in these places where we are gazing upon something we cannot understand and realize that a billion years from now we are still going to be staring into the mystery and saying, I cannot understand. That's lovely. So, gentle. Well, we got a long way. Not quarrelsome. Blessed are the peacemakers, my friend. Were you being a peacemaker when you said that? <laughs> Not quarrelsome. I, I'm going to tell you, I've been on boards where there were people that I felt like came to every board meeting specifically to start a fight. I, oh, man. I've been, in, I've been on staff teams where there was a person on the staff team that I felt like they came to every staff meeting to start start something. They weren't as interested in our unity as they were in stirring up the stuff. Paul says, that's not the person you want on your team. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. Why is it important for the body of Christ not to be run by people who love money? Because you cannot serve two masters. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Matthew 6, 20, 27. <clears throat> I read a book recently called The Politics of Mammon. It was, whew, was written by a, uh, a communist. And it was a critique of the 
the church in America and its love for capitalism. Tell you what. There was some stuff in there that I was like, nah, I can't go with you there. But most of it was this scathing critique of the worship of money in the Church of Jesus Christ. Ooh, it was hard. You gotta read stuff that makes you uncomfortable, folks. You gotta do it. You gotta do it. Read stuff that makes you uncomfortable. Read stuff you disagree with. Never going to crystallize your actual thoughts until they have an opponent. That's how I feel. That's why I read Richard Dawkins. That's why I read Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Robin? <laughs> I have so many problems with Pooh. He's such a hedonist. All right, next. <clears throat> Verse 4. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to mortgage, manage his own household, <laughs> mortgage his own he will care, how will he care for God's church? Ooh, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? How do you, he, he has to manage his own household well. Like a pastor? Yeah. Yeah, you can't manage. Like, so what do you do with pastors whose kids are rebellious? Hey, that happens. Sometimes that's not their fault. I'm just reading the Bible here, folks. I mean, it, I feel like that, that can be used to like put pressure on pastors' kids, though. Like they it can't make mistakes, can. or, or parents of, of pastors who are parents. Like sure. your kid has to be more yep. together than all these other teenagers going through. Yeah, I felt stuff. that pressure big time. Yeah. As a kid. Yeah. I did. I just think that's whack. It's not fair. Because I feel like, let's say, you have a teenager who is doing something they shouldn't be doing. I think managing your household well isn't necessarily not having kids who mess up. But appropriately keeping your his kids children submissive. I think that can just be taken in a toxic way. Or I agree. Way. So, what's the healthy way and what's the toxic way? That's what I'm asking. Well, the toxic way would be that your children are smushed underneath your thumb. Right. And out of fear, don't do anything wrong. Mm hmm. The healthy way would be when your children make mistakes, they trust your guidance enough to come to you. What does it mean for a church to enable their pastor to father their children well or mother their children well? Well, <laughs> I have ideas, but I'm wondering what you think. I don't know. I've never really heard that. For me, I think it means you can't ask too much of your pastor's time. That you invest in the health of your pastor's family. Yeah. Well, so I, like, I know that we're taught here pretty well that, like, your family comes first, you know. But there's, like, 
with their faith or something. But they weren't. Like they were all together for the whole day on Thanksgiving. And the day after and the day after. And just like it's like how do you how are you teaching them the balance of having your family and ministry? Right. With you. They're being taught ministry does not come in any circumstance, not your family comes before ministry. And And praise God we have leaders that are teaching us that. Amen. And I will say my my dad talked about it a lot. So it was a it was a value he had, but it was very difficult for him to actually live that value out. Because the church, I'm going to say this to any of you that are thinking about ministry, the church will take whatever you're willing to give. And church people will take whatever you're willing to give. Which is why it's incredibly necessary for you to learn how to set boundaries, how to say no in a healthy way, how to receive the answer of no from people that are volunteering for you. How to see when someone is on the edge of burnout and tell them to chill and to take some time off and etc. All of these are things that the church has not done well. And the reason the church has not done done them well is because we don't we're we're not good at recognizing what this is really all about, which is it's about people and it's about love and it's about not it's not about the organization or the or the event. It's about a lifestyle and a lifetime. There's a book that I would recommend to all of you called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Mm-hmm. Pastor Caleb, he stays on our books. <laughs> How many books do you think you've read this week? Me? Ten, fifteen. Three quarters of one. <laughs> <laughs> Pastor Caleb has recommended that book to us. So Ruthless yeah. Elimination of Hurry is a wonderful book, and I love the guy that wrote it. And he is, <clears throat> I am, I am eagerly awaiting. He just wrote another book, which is good. I haven't read it yet. I probably won't read it actually, but uh, I mean, it 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 looks interesting. But I think I'm already there. Like, yeah, I don't know that I really need that book, but. That guy, and I'm trying to remember his name. I can't remember his name. John Mark is his first name. His first name is John Mark, but I don't remember his last name. Yeah. He's a pastor in Portland. And his church is all about spiritual practice. Not just Sunday morning services, which are great. I love Sunday morning services. We continue. We will do... The Sunday morning service is one of or one place where we engage in certain spiritual practices which need to extend out beyond Spirit Sunday morning and become the pattern of a follower of Jesus' life. This is how we're going to end. I'm going to walk through the list of spiritual practices that I am teaching to my church. Some of this I stole from John Mark. What is it? What's his name? Starts with a C. John Mark what? Comer? Um, spiritual practice. 
if you look at his website, he has a, a trillion spiritual practices. I'm just like, dude, how can you even keep all those in your head? But, uh, where did I put them? It's under muscle memory. The other way I talk about it is muscle memory. somewhere I'll just tell you the ones I remember if I can't find it what do you think are some spiritual practices that we should be involved with on a regular basis oh, hmm? communion. communion is one but you're picking on my love for communion right there no I'm not I love communion <laughs> I'm agreeing with your love for communion. <laughs> what else? <laughs> Fasting. Fasting. Great one. Forgiveness. Thank you. <laughs> no, that's true. That's absolutely right. Yes, generosity. Absolutely. So prayer. Yeah. Discipleship? Well, I would call this discipleship. All of this is discipleship. Oh. What about silence? Like solitude? Yes. Solitude. So what do we said? We said prayer and fasting. We said giving or generosity is the word that I like to use. Forgiveness. Silence. <laughs> trying to think of what about gathering? Yes. Fellowship. The Greek word for that is koinonia. Which literally means symbiosis. Koinonia. Yeah, it means fellowship. That's the word translated fellowship in the New Testament. And it, it means an interconnected life, a life with each other. Koinonia, the fellowship. I'm trying to think if there's any that I haven't. Like worship? Yes. Absolutely. And not necessarily just singing, but right. worship practices. Under, under the category of prayer, I would include yeah. worship. Yeah. I would include silence. I would include, and here's one, praying other people's prayers. Mm. This one is oddly controversial. The church has practiced it for 2,000 years, but in our day... When I tell you, you should pray prayers that don't just come from you, the prayers that were written by other people. Uh, most, most folks in our kind of church are like, ugh, 
What? Gross. But I would remind you, you do it every single Sunday. You just do it in song. What are worship songs? Most of them are prayers, right? Did you write them all? No, you did not. That's someone else did. <clears throat> so, you are praying other people's prayers. But there are ancient prayers that I would point you towards, like the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. I love that prayer. That's a beautiful prayer. Yeah, I will pull it up for you so that I, so that I probably have it mostly memorized, but I think it would be a CC. It's yes, but I can't remember how it's how it's spelled. Yes, it's wonderful. There's a prayer. And why should we pray other people's prayers? It's the last thing we're going to say. Why should we pray other people's prayers? What's the point? Ooh, that's good. Short. Because they're smarter than you. Oh, there you go. That's good, too. Here's the thing. Prayer is formational. The words that we say, the words that we pray, especially, they shape who we are. We don't necessarily think about prayer that way a lot of times. Think about prayer as a relationship with God. We think about prayer as our list of things we're asking God for, and it is both of those things, but it's also formational. We say things in prayer that we would like to believe. We say things in prayer that we want to have happen in us. We have to make a choice to forgive before we ever feel like we've forgiven someone. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. So same, the prayer of Francis of Assisi goes like this. So we pray prayers like Jesus' prayer that he taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus said, the disciples came to him and they said, Jesus, teach us to pray because they saw what his prayer life was able to accomplish. And Jesus said, when you pray, say this. And he gave them a prayer to pray. Now, is it a model of prayer? Yes, it certainly is. But it's also a prayer we should pray. So in my prayer liturgy, which is the list of prayers that I pray that I did not write, is the, one of them is the Lord's Prayer. But this is the one from St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that I receive. It is in pardoning that I am pardoned. And it is in dying that I am born again to eternal life. That's a great prayer. 
500 years old. It's a wonderful prayer. It was originally written in Italian. <laughs> I don't know. I know somebody, exactly. I know somebody could do that for us. I can't do that. I don't know. I mean, I understand. It would be nice to learn a different language, but actually, it actually expands the ability of your brain to think thoughts. I don't think it would do that for me. It would. <laughs> I think it would confuse me. When you can hold a word in your head that has no direct meaning in English, but that you understand the meaning in that language, it changes the it's ability like so of your brain to think. It is not easy, but nothing worth doing is easy. smart they're like way above where they should be cognitively because their parents like yeah. Spanish is the most common language sure. but like a lot of the families that are Hispanic their kids are I'm like you're just smarter than me and you're five years old because you can speak both languages it's cool I'm like wow they really have like their brain has just learned twice as fast it's amazing languages. I'm amazed by it truly I wish that I was my wife is bilingual I wish that she speaks Spanish. She uh, lived in Guatemala and Honduras when she was a preteen and teenager. I wish I could. As a missionary's kid. What's that? And I went to an intercultural high school. Yeah. Okay, I want to finish with with the ninefold prayer. This is praying through the through the beatitudes, and I'm just going to pray it. You can join with me in spirit, and then eventually we'll learn how to do it. Okay, so Jesus said, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Our first instinct is toward worry and anxiety, clutching after the things that we need. But this beatitude invites us to believe in a world of abundance and a Father who gives us everything we need. So Lord, lead us in the way of open-handed trust. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Our first in instinct is to escape from pain, to avoid it at all costs, to be numb. This beatitude invites us to feel feelings, to sit in pain and find Jesus waiting for us there. So we pray, Lord, lead us in the way of lament. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Our first instinct is to build our sense of worth on competition and comparison. 
that this beatitude invites us to recognize and acknowledge our intrinsic dignity and worth and to honor the worth of others. So we say, Lord, lead us in the way of humility. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Our first instinct is to see the way the world is broken and throw our hands up in frustration and resignation. But this beatitude invites us to recognize our power and to understand that we are the light of the world. So Lord, lead us in the way of justice. Jesus said, blessed are those who are merciful for they shall receive mercy. Our first instinct is to judge what is good and evil, both in others and in ourselves. We would seek to punish others and to heap shame upon ourselves. But this beatitude invites us to see everyone, ourselves included, through eyes of mercy and compassion. So we pray, Lord, lead us in the way of compassion. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Our first instinct is to hide ourselves, to protect ourselves with the mask of our persona. This beatitude invites us to take off our masks and step into the light and be healed and transformed. So we pray, Lord, lead us in the way of right motive. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. Our first instinct is to think in terms of us versus them, my family, my tribe, my country. This beatitude invites us to acknowledge that there is now no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ Jesus and to reach past difference to connect with each other. So we pray, Lord, lead us in the way of peacemaking and advocacy. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Our first instinct is to violently stand in protection of our rights, to rant and complain when we see something that's unfair. But this beatitude invites us to nonviolent resistance, to surrender to suffering and struggle, knowing that we're part of a greater cosmic battle between good and evil. So we pray, Lord, lead us in the way of surrender. Jesus said, blessed are you when you are mocked, when you are hated on, uh, for my sake. Rejoice and be glad, for so they treated the prophets before you. Our first instinct is to fear death suffering and misunderstanding, to avoid resistance against us and so close down and protect ourselves. But this beatitude invites us to expect pushback as we adopt the Jesus way and to stay open to love by dying to ourselves, embracing the cross and ending the cycle of returning sin for sin. So we pray, Lord, lead us in the way of self-giving, all-forgiving, co-suffering love. Amen. Mm -hmm. That's hardcore, isn't it? Where did you find that?
<clears throat> it's a no. It's from. Those are my notes from a book called *The Manifold Path of Jesus*, which it's fantastic. It's really not long, but it'll kick your butt. It's so good. All right, y'all. It was great hanging out with you today.